you could be in theory bringing in a little bit of money and also doing work. And then the question is, are you doing enough work to, to make it, you know, that you're really actively involved or are you just kind of giving some consulting or some very minor, you know, active activity. But you have to look at it at, at the whole, you know, if, if you and somebody else are, are doing a syndication or being active, like just look at the whole, what, what exactly are they contributing? How, how much are they contributing? And does that look commensurate which with the amount of money they put in? Because for example, if somebody puts in, you know, 90% of the money, but does 5% of the work, that's probably going to be a syndication because it's just so unbalanced. Um, so, it, but if there's no black and white, it gets a little bit of a gray, it's a, it's a sliding scale, so to speak, of how much involvement somebody would have to be considered active versus passive. With no limitations, what does your perfect day look like? What if it's possible to live like that every day? Would you wake up after 9am, have perfect health, maybe fire your boss, have the money and freedom to do what you love most? The world is your oyster. Where would you be? Who would you be with? The possibilities are endless. Whether you believe it's possible for you or not, you can make more, work less and live free. Welcome to Freedom Hack Radio, where entrepreneur, best-selling author, world traveler and adventurer, Bryce Robertson and special guests crack the code on money, health, relationships, spirituality and having fun doing what you love most. Be inspired to create your own self-designed freedom lifestyle. Welcome back to another episode of Freedom Hack Radio. I'm your host, Bryce Robertson. And today, my friends, I'm really excited because we get to talk about syndication. Now, I'm assuming a lot of you don't know what syndication is. Don't worry. We're going to talk a lot about that today. And here to join us talking about this is Mr. Mauricio Rold from Premier Law Group. Uh, we work with Mauricio. He, he's an exceptional attorney. We really love working with him. And it's really great to have you here on Freedom Hack Radio, Mauricio. Thanks for having me, Bryce. Looking, really looking forward to it. Beautiful, beautiful. So a place I always love to start, mate. I've got to know what's given you the most gratitude today. Man, I'm, I'm really, you know, it's an interesting time because so many people have had a really rough time over the last, you know, six, 12 months. And I almost feel guilty because, I'm, you know, things have been pretty well. I'm healthy. My family's healthy. I've got two little girls there. Everybody's in perfect health. Um, you know, everything's kind of going according to plan still and haven't really been affected too much on the negative side. So that's what I kind of, I'm really grateful that we've got our health, we've got our, we've got our family. And more importantly, we, we haven't, I know so many people out there are struggling. So it's, it's just, I'm, I'm very acutely aware of that. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Very important right now. So we're here today. We're here today to talk about syndication. So do you want to start off by giving us a little bit of a syndication 101? Like, what is it? What's it all about? And, and why would someone use it? Do the three-day seminar in, uh, in a couple of minutes here. <laughs> <laughs> so look, syndication, we don't need to get too complicated. At the end of the day, a syndication is simply somebody pooling resources. And, and most of the time, that's money. But I'll talk about that in a second. It doesn't have to be money. But it's just essentially pooling other people's money or other people's resources to go do something. You know, in our world, we're pooling money in order to go buy real estate or buy some kind of an asset that you want to invest in, which maybe you either don't have sufficient money on your own, or maybe for reasons you don't want to use your own money. And so you go out there and you find individuals to give you pieces of that capital raise, and then you go buy the real estate, for example, in our example. And the reason I say capital is because I think a lot of people get hampered with the idea or the notion that, hey, I don't have any money and I don't have anything to contribute when when that capital really, in addition to cash, which is probably obviously the most common one, you know, it includes things like credit, 
right? You, you may have credit, which is a very valuable resource. You have the, the knowledge and the expertise. Um, a lot of people, you know, when I do these seminars and I, you know, I, I say, how many of you know people who couldn't be caught dead spending a weekend, you know, your Saturday and Sunday at a, at a seminar learning about how to, you know, how to invest in real estate or how to buy multi, whatever it is you're doing. And so that's a resource. You have the knowledge, you put in the time. There are plenty of people out there that have a lot of money. Think professionals like doctors and lawyers who, who just are, are really high income earners, but don't have the time, which is another resource, don't have the time or the knowledge or the expertise to do what you're doing. And so just, just pooling all those resources to go do something. That's what a syndication is in its most, you know, most basic form. And I think you brought up a really good point there. A lot of people starting out, and even I thought this when I was starting out, is that you have to have money, you have to have credit, you have to have like all these things to get started. But like I, I bought my first mobile home park when I had a negative net worth, $2,000 in the bank and unseasoned credit. And I went to family and friends who had some money. I found the deal, we put it together. And then ever since then, I've actually used syndication through all throughout my career because it's just absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, but it gives, uh, from my experience, syndication gives people to get involved in deals that they just otherwise wouldn't have the bandwidth to get involved in. And so many people start off thinking that what they need is the same thing that everybody else needs, but people's needs are completely different. Um, you know, for example, right now, I need a lot of things to, out I need people in my team to outsource to. Um, and I, time is my problem. You know, money is not a problem. Time is a problem. And so when someone can come in and relieve my time, they're adding massive value to my life. And a lot of newbies don't think that they think they need to come to the table with like money or something, but it's just not the case. Yeah, and in your case, dude, you're a great example. You didn't have the money, you didn't have the credit, but you had the time and the expertise and the knowledge and the drive and all those things that are super valuable for somebody who may have the money but don't 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 have those resources. So, uh, and then and then a very common one that a lot of my clients started off with was also, hey, maybe they had the money, but you know they ran out of credit. You know, maybe they bought so many single-family homes they couldn't get any more of those great uh, one-to-four-unit loans, and so they would partner with somebody who had great credit but didn't have the money. And so they would get together and they would partner and they would go do a syndication together. So um, just keep that in mind whenever you're thinking about what can you add. It's all about adding value, right? So what can you do to add value? And doesn't necessarily have to be time or credit. Yeah, and so basically what we're talking about here so far is you're talking about there's basically two main parties that would be involved in the syndication. There's the operator who's putting the deal together and, and um, doing all of the work. And then there's the passive investor who's trusting in the operator and they're going to bring money to the table and invest. And so for the rest of our conversation, we're going to be talking from both perspectives here. Um, but for, before we get into that too deeply, can you just explain what defines, how do we know when we're involved in a syndication? What defines this? That's a great question. That's very often misunderstood, but it's such a critical question is, you know, what is a syndication, which really means what is a security, which is maybe we've talked briefly about that. You know, I'm really, even though people think of me as a syndication attorney, I'm really a securities lawyer. I'm an SEC, mm -hmm. a Securities and Exchange Commission attorney. Um, and a lot of people, especially in the real estate world, they're like, why is the SEC involved? And I'm just buying a piece of property or a building. Like, why in the world would I have to worry about securities laws or SEC stuff? And the reason for that is that the laws define what a security is really broadly. And so a syndication or a securities offering is very broad. And in its most essence form, anytime you are out there taking money from passive investors, where the returns are generated by your efforts. You're doing all the work, you're putting the deal together, you're collecting the monies, you're executing on the business plan, you're doing all the work and the person is simply writing you a check and then going home and you're generating the return. 
that's when you're actually issuing a security and you're doing a syndication. So there's a lot of misunderstanding where people try and, you know, try and structure it in such a unique way where they think they're getting around that, you know, maybe they're thinking it's a joint venture agreement, or maybe they're thinking, hey, we'll have direct title to the property. That way we're not selling, you know, LLC units or something. And none of that matters. At the end of the day, the question is, are you passive or are you active? Because if you're passive, you're giving that person a security. If they're active, then obviously they're, they're, they're sharing the work that you're doing, which is typically not the case in a, in a typical syndication. That's great. I love how you just defined that as simple as passive versus active. So passive, that's pretty easy to understand. That means that they don't really have much involvement apart from bringing capital to the table and making the decision to invest. And then they just sit back and enjoy the ride. But what would be considered active? How do you know? Can you be an investor and bring money to the table and still be active? You can bring money for the table. I would at that point, I wouldn't call you necessarily an investor. It's, it's kind of that's where you're getting into that fine line. You could be in theory bringing in a little bit of money and also doing work. And then the question is, are you doing enough work to, to make it you know, that you're really actively involved or are you just kind of giving some consulting or some very minor you know, active activity? But you have to look at it at, at the whole. You know, if, if you and somebody else are, are doing a syndication or being active, like just look at the whole, what, what exactly are they contributing? How, how much are they contributing? And does that look commensurate which, with the amount of money they put in? Because for example, if somebody puts in you know, 90% of the money but does 5% of the work, that's probably going to be a syndication because it's just so unbalanced. Um, so, it, but if there's no black and white, it gets a little bit of a gray. It's a, it's a sliding scale, so to speak, of how much involvement somebody would have to be considered active versus passive. Yeah, it is a very gray area. And a lot of people breaking into the space don't understand how gray that is. And, uh, you know, so we do things right. We do things successfully in a syndication. And then we can end up scaling our business and bringing in investors on the mix and investors can get involved in deals they otherwise wouldn't be able to get involved in. And it works out well for everybody. It's kind of a win-win situation. But if we don't do it properly and we don't follow the right legal procedures, I mean, what kind of things can be the outcome for incorrectly approaching a syndication by not following the right legal procedures yeah. and thinking that you're not in a syndication when you are like, can, can we just get a slap on the wrist? Like what's the penalties we're looking at here? Well, let me tell you, I recently wrote a book or an ebook called the five things every syndicator must know to stay out of jail. So uh, it's unlikely you're going to go to jail, but it is possible. And when you're looking at the extreme, I mean, just ask Bernie Madoff. He, he, he was engaged in some securities violation and now is, is, is a cellmate of someone. But most likely, the, the most common uh, penalty for doing an illegal offering is what, is, is what we call it, would essentially be what we call restitution, which means you would be responsible to, number one, return all of your investors' money, make them whole, plus interest on that money, uh, and then most likely be barred from raising capital for some specific amount of time, maybe forever, maybe for a couple of years, depends on how you end up. Most of these things end up getting negotiated. So, you know, we're not in the business as somebody who's raising money and putting a deal together. We're not in the business of guaranteeing investors money, right? We're not guaranteeing that if you give me a hundred grand, we're going to give you a return. But when you do an illegal offering, that's kind of what you're doing, because even if the deal goes south for no reason, no fault of your own, maybe, you know, Back in 08, you know, a lot of people lost money because, you know, the capital markets froze or, you know, just the, the huge recession. It may be none of your fault, but because you did an illegal offering, they're going to nail you for that part of it. And that that requires you to return all the all of the investors money, which most likely you don't have right at that point. And so you're probably filing for bankruptcy. And again, it's going on your record. If this is something you want to do for a while, you're going to be barred for, for some period of time of doing it. So it's, it's serious. And that's why I chose that title, by the way. And that's why I wrote the ebook. I think a lot of people take the securities laws, just they don't think it's a big deal for some reason. And they're like, ah, oh, you know, whatever, 
and they just go ahead and do it. And I just wanted to point out that there are some severe consequences um, by not by not following the rules. Yeah, and I syndicate deals. Um, a lot of my peers syndicate deals as well, and we're very aware. We're like, I mean, we, we really want to make sure that we're following the right process and procedures to make sure we're doing it right because we don't want to take those risks. So I do want to reiterate for people that are listening right now, for all of our freedom hackers, yes, if you do a syndication incorrectly, there can be big consequences, but if you do it correctly and you follow the path and there's a pretty easy path to follow, you just got to make sure that you follow that path and do it legally, and then you can have all the win-wins situation and so that, and uh, rice and that's why it's so critical i know it's a little bit of a self self-interested comment but you really this is not a do-it-yourself thing like you want to hire have an attorney that specializes in securities law so they can help you navigate those minds they're, they're not at the end of the day it's not super complicated there's some easy paths to follow but but having somebody guide you through that then you don't have to worry about all this concern about stepping on those line lines because we can easily navigate through those as you mentioned and we'll talk about that a little bit later like there's just some easy ways to do it and that's where 95 percent of the people do yeah yeah and then the sec has to draw a line in the sand because on one hand there there is people out there that are selling snake oil and taking advantage of people and the sec needs to be in place to protect people uh, so that they're not you know being preyed on by by people who have more info or knowledge in the investment space and on the other hand, I also feel like the SEC is kind of like they want to make a bit of money because they think that syndicators have deep pockets, which is a whole nother topic. But um, <laughs> just that's just my opinion there. But uh, I, I want to dig into what some of the exemptions are um, in, in offerings and, and what that looks like and how we can follow some rules to do things correctly. Yeah, I mean, let's just take it back one last step. So we, we've discussed what a what a security or a syndication is, right? The taking of passive investors. And once you realize that that's what you're doing, then I like to say there's three things we we have to think about. Uh, number one, we have to either register that security or register that syndication with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which you never want to do. Number two, we have to find an exemption, which is what you just talked about. We have to find an exemption to that registration. Or number three, it's illegal. Those are your three options, right? And so obviously we don't want to be doing anything illegal. We don't want to be Bernie Madoff. We don't want to be doing things like that, which is one of the reasons you want to have that securities attorney, make sure you're not violating those rules. You never want to register. I almost never say never, but this one, I'm like, you never want to register. That's basically going public. It's going to take you years and years to get that done and hundreds, if not millions of dollars to get that through the process. So that's not realistic. So we're always looking for an exemption to the registration, which is what you were referring, Bryce. And that's really where I spend all my working hours working on the, uh, what exemptions are the proper ones for your particular deal and there's a lot of them but luckily for us there's about two of them that that make up about 95 percent of all of the exemptions out or all of the offerings out there so these are the ones that if you've heard some exemptions you've probably heard these two and these are the rule 506b as in boy and rule 506c as in charlie and that's about as technical as we're going to get today but those two exemptions, 506B and 506C, are by far the most popular exemptions that people rely on. Uh, I know at least the ones that we've done together, Bryce, it's one of those two that we've always relied on. And, mm -hmm. and the reason for that is twofold. Number one, they are what we call safe harbors, meaning they have a bunch of boxes we've got to check. But if we check all those boxes of the, each exemption, then we're essentially assured that we complied with the rule and we complied with the exemption, so we're good. Right. And that's always certainty is always a big, a big thing. So we always like to know that we did it right. And so if we just check these boxes under these exemptions, we're good. The other reason that's critical is that it preempts state law, which is just a fancy way of saying we don't have to worry about each state 
that you have investors in, because if you if that's not around, just think about it. We're talking about federal securities laws, right? But there's also, as you know, we have a dual system. So each state, you know, you're in North Carolina, I'm in California. I mean, we have vastly different state securities laws. Can you imagine if you had to not only worry about the state exemptions, but now you had to go hire an attorney in every single state that you are have investors in and make sure that the way you structured your deal complies with all those different rules. It's a nightmare. And so these two exemptions, 506B and 506C basically tell us we don't have to worry about the state securities law. We can just focus on the federal ones other than anti-fraud, which we'll talk about in a second. We can always, we'll always be on the hook if you're, if you're engaging in fraud or, or failure to disclose or things like that. But in general, we, we don't have to go hire an attorney in six different states or 10 different states. So that's probably the two, the two reasons those exemptions are the most popular. Um, and those, all, those, those two exemptions fall under our, our big umbrella of, of Regulation D as in David, Reg D. Those are our two main Reg D exemptions. Okay. So can we walk through a hypothetical scenario of a, a 506B and talk about all of the pros and cons to doing a 506B and then we can do the same thing with a 506C? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's go with 506B for starters because that's the really the original exemption until you know about seven years ago now, or maybe eight almost. Man, it's already time flies when you're having fun. So about eight, seven and a half years ago, uh, we only had 506B. It actually only was called 506. That's the only thing we had, um, and that was an, the most popular exemption. And that exemption allowed you. The good news was it allowed you to raise an unlimited amount of money, which is great. Uh, this is actually an exemption that all of these big securities firms, you know, the JP Morgans and the Goldman Sachs and, and those big boys, as you speak, um, they all use 506B by and large. So you because and they're raising billions of dollars, right? I mean, I just saw the last real estate fund that I saw, which is about a year ago now, but uh, BlackRock, one of the largest um, private equity groups, they raised $26 billion into a fund. And it was a 506B because you can raise an unlimited, but we're not going to get anywhere near, I don't think, not yet. Billion? With a B. In a couple of years, we'll do a billion. Wow. Yeah, um, we're working uh, on but it. You can raise an unlimited amount of money. So that's obviously attractive. Uh, number two, you can accept a limited number of non-accredited investors. And let's talk about that in a second. So the SEC makes a distinction between accredited investors and non-accredited investors. And essentially at this point in time, which is actually about to change, but at this point in time, an accredited investor is basically a high net worth individual. It's somebody who either has a million dollars in net worth or more, excluding their primary residence, or earns or has earned $200,000 the last two years with a reasonable expectation of earning that much this year. So high net worth individuals are considered accredited and everybody else is non-accredited. And for, we can argue this all day long, but the, the laws presume that if you're an accredited investor, you need less protection, right? Because you have all this money, you can afford to lose the money. And so the SEC is less concerned about those individuals. So it kind of has a separate set of rules for accredited investors versus non-accredited investors, which are usually, you know, sort of the smaller people, the less sophisticated, again, in theory, even though it's arguable, but less sophisticated, you know, the, the little old lady, the widower, you know, all those people that get taken advantage of those consumer protection laws. That's what really a lot of these securities laws are meant to protect. So we make a distinction between accredited and non-accredited and the benefit of 506B is as long as these non-accredited investors have some level of sophistication, which is fairly easy to, to, to pass, then you can accept a limited number of them into your deal, which is nice. So especially if you're starting out, 
and you want to buy a, a single family home and you need to go raise, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and you want to take money from your friends and your family, you know, inevitably, you know, Aunt Karen or, or Uncle Bob, you know, they, they're your family members. They don't, they don't have the accreditation status, but they're allowed to come in versus a lot of the other exemptions and most of the other exemptions, they're not allowed in. So that's one of the benefits of 506B, probably the number one reason most people gravitate towards that exemption. So, and what's one of the, um, what's some of the things that a sophisticated investor could do to prove that they're sophisticated, you know? You know, they can take courses. Um, certainly if they've invested before though, if, if it's your first deal, it's hard to do. It's a chicken and the egg. But if obviously if you've been involved in syndic, if you've invested passively in syndications before, that's one thing. If you, if you haven't, then go take some courses, uh, a weekend seminar or some online courses, which is some educational stuff. Those are probably the two main, main ways. But at the end of the day, to be honest with you, it's, it's really a, a representation that the investor makes. So one of the things you're always going to do, I mean, you're not going to take Pete unless you're doing another thing, but you're typically, even if you do the other one, you're not going to accept money from people you, you've never, that you've never met before. You're at least going to have some form of a conversation with the person and get to know them a little bit. And, and during that process of getting on the phone, talking to them and just kind of getting to know them a little bit, even um, that's going to come out, you know, you're going to ask them certain questions and find out, you know, if they've never invested before and they're a little old lady, who's a widow and just inherited a bunch of money, you know, that's probably not a sophisticated person, but if they've taken some courses and maybe invested in a couple syndications or own, you know, own real estate already or own businesses, or you can just kind of tell they have that financial, the technical definition is they just have to have that level of expertise and knowledge so that they can, they can, they can evaluate the risks and the merits of your investment. That's really the technical definition of sophistication. So just having that knowledge and expertise of, of being able to, to look at all the information you're going to give them, which is a lot, and then figure out if that's the right investment for them. And interestingly, from a legal perspective, when we're looking at the syndication documents, the vast majority of the language in there is disclosing to the investor all of the risks, all the potential risks that they can be involved in. And so, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, once, once an investor goes through a syndication correctly, there's no doubting that they had the opportunity to evaluate all of their risks and make a, a sound decision. Yeah. And one of the, the sort of one of the negatives of doing a 506B along with the non-accredited is what you just mentioned, which is the level of disclosures that you need to provide your investors is, I'm going to say off the charts. I mean, it's not just like, hey, here's some information and here's like some information about the property and, you know, here's the good news. It's really, it's the highest level of disclosures that you can think of. Uh, typically you're providing them even with audited financials if you have them and that's another thing but you really at the level of disclosure you're giving non-accredited is is very different from the level of disclosure that if you're only doing accredited if you're only doing accredited actually you get to most people don't know this you actually get to choose what disclosures you provide your accredited investors there's no requirement to provide them any particular set of disclosures um, the challenge is once you do provide them with some type of information that information better be full, complete, you know, mm -hmm. not omitting any facts. So that then automatically triggers, you know, a whole set of disclosures based on the information you provide them. But the, the less amount of information you give the investor on, a, on an accredited, potentially the less amount of disclosures because you don't have to offset them. But um, anyway, but the bottom line is that that's probably one of the negatives is you do have to do what you mentioned, the disclosure documents, which is typically what we call a, a PPM. You may have heard that term, a private placement memorandum, which is just a disclosure document. It's actually the, the, the best example I've given is, and I, I'm constantly in the at the dentist office. I was literally there yesterday. Um, but if you've ever gone to the dentist or had surgery, 
uh, prior and I had a procedure done, before you do the procedure, the doctor will come out with that kind of a yellow sheet and it's called that medical consent form, right? And it kind of just says all the risks involved in that particular procedure. I've had my, uh, I've had oral surgery quite a few times, have some wisdom teeth taken out. And they describe all the risk, even though I'm gonna go under for like three minutes, it's like, you know, you could have some bleeding, some inflammation, maybe an infection, you could die from the procedure. I mean, all the worst case scenarios. And then you sign off on that medical consent form, the doctor signs off on it and they go in and do the procedure. Very similar with a PPM, they're just all the financial disclosures and the risks. So it's every single way your deal can go wrong. Even if you think it's unfathomable, you want to disclose every possible way your deal could go south, all of the risks involved, to the extent you have some disclosures that you're required to make, you want to put those in there. But it's just a, it's an awful document to read, um, uh, especially if, you, if it, you've never seen one before, because it just, it's just, it's not something you want to invest in once you just read that on its own. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a daunting document, uh, which is why I always recommend, make sure you've got them sold on the front end, so <laughs> or give them the heads up so by the time they read it, you're just letting them know, look, you don't expect uh, you know a comet to hit the earth tomorrow, but if it does, you know your investment could go south. Um, so anyways, that's that's the that's the the private place memorandum, which is a requirement for any non-accredited investors on under a 506b deal. And that's the upside of an investor getting involved in a syndication that's done correctly through a syndication attorney such as yourself. They're going to have all those disclosures and they'll have the opportunity to be able to analyze all that and make a sound decision. Whereas if a deal wasn't put together through that method, it would really be up to the investor to do all of their own due diligence and find out what those risks are. They'd really have to know what they're investing in um, at a much deeper level. Um, so it really is there to, to protect investors, um, and, but it is... A daunting yeah, sorry, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, it is a daunting document. We're talking like, you know, 60, 80 pages of, of like all the things that could go wrong pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And then, but the nice thing about it, and that's a big, you know, one of the benefits of doing these private placements, investing in a private placement versus, you know, buying Apple or going in the stock market or doing some of these traditional ones is, is that you, you do have a more personal relationship with the team and sometimes even the sponsor themselves where you you can reach out to them if you're looking at these documents and you have your question i mean i know for my clients anyway if if if, if the person reviewing the document has a, a question about some of the legal parts in it then they get to talk to me they can you know have to shoot an email and then the email gets to me and I'm, I'm not actually explaining the documents to them from a legal perspective or if you have a question about the project somebody on the team is going to go through that with you you don't get that if you buy Apple stock, you know, or Tesla, you don't get to talk to Elon Musk or his team and say, Hey, well, what if you don't, if this happens or what if you don't produce as many cars, then is that going to, you don't get that. And so that's a nice little difference with these private placements that that closeness to the management team and the, and the operator that you can actually ask questions and, and get those questions. In fact, that's one of the requirements that you should have the opportunity to ask all the questions you need so that you can make the whole idea is that the investor can make an informed decision. Is this, a, is this a suitable investment for me? as a passive investor, and in order to make that decision, I have to be sophisticated enough to make those decisions, and then you have to provide me with all the material disclosures, all that information, so that I can make that reasonable decision. Yeah, and as an operator, we get asked all those questions. We get asked everything. What happens if you die? What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? What happens if this happens? And a good operator needs to have an answer for all of that. You need to have covered all of these bases. Yeah. Um, so going, still staying on the 506B, one of the things that is a requirement is that we have to have a pre-existing relationship with the investor or the passive investor. So an operator and an investor have to have a pre-existing relationship before they can do a deal together. How could we define having a pre-existing relationship? And I know it's a gray area. So what guidelines do you think would help us to navigate through that? 
Yeah, so, so the rule actually is that you, the, 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 one of the negatives of 506B, let's put it that way, or one of the limitations, I wouldn't say the, 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 the negative, one of the limitations of a 506B deal is, is that you cannot advertise that deal or generally solicit. It has to literally be a private offering with people in, already in your group. And the easiest way and most common way to prove that you did not advertise and prove that you did not generally solicit is to have this pre-existing substantive relationship with your investor. Because if you have that relationship, then obviously you didn't, you know, that person did not invest with you because you did a post on Facebook or they heard this podcast that you already have that relationship. This is actually one of the, one of the areas that we have a little bit more clarity, you know, all the other areas, it's super vague. And, you know, what is, you know, what is a security or what is, you know, you know, what is an advertisement, you know, what, what is an offer, you know, what is condition, they're all very vague terms, but the SEC has come out with some really nice guidance on this particular topic. And so there's about five or six or sometimes seven things that an operator should do in order to establish that pre that substantive relay. Let's go with substantive first. There's two parts of it, pre-existing and substantive. So let's go with the substantive. Basically what the SEC wants you to do is get to know them as, as well as you can to determine whether they're sophisticated. That's the ultimate goal of this relationship, right? Whether that takes a few phone calls, whether that takes a year, whether that takes a weekend, there's no magic timeline. It's just the quality of those interactions between, let's say it's you and me. You know, I always, I always um, tell the story as, you know, I don't know if you guys know the real estate guys, but we used to do, we do, do field trips overseas for like three days. And they're like intense Huh? Yeah, Belize is one of them, but they do yeah. these in, in all markets. You know, we used to do Vegas, Scottsdale, they do whatever the hottest okay. market there. So we, we do a trip. So in this case, let's get Belize. So let's say we, you and I go down to Belize together to do this trip with a group of people. And it's literally three days of intense. You know, we have breakfast together. We have dinner together. We have drinks at night. And in between, it's just jam-packed sessions. And when we spend, by the end of those three days, Bryce and I are going to be like brothers. Like, we're going to know each other so well. We spent every single second, other than sleeping, we're going we're gonna to spend every single second together. Compare that to, you know, I saw Bryce on some posts and, you know, somehow I got on his email list and he's been emailing me, you know, once a month or once a quarter. Yeah. I may know you for a year, but that's not the quality of that year is nowhere near the quality of those three days. So it's not a magic uh, time frame. There's no, some people talk about the three touch rule. None of that matters. The SEC is looking for the quality of those interactions. And the way you get those qualities is this set of steps, honestly. I mean, actually in my ebook, I talk, talk about these seven steps. Number one, you, you wanna send your prospective investor a really detailed questionnaire. Not just, you know, what's your name and your favorite color and, you know, are you accredited or not? But like, you know, what, what, what are your investment goals? Are you looking for growth? Are you looking for passive? You know, are you looking for just cash flow? You know, what, what's your level of experience? Have you invested before? You know, where and how much do you own real estate? Like basically very similar if people have, have opened up brokerage accounts and, and trying to get an, uh, an options account. They, they ask you all these questions about, you know, how have, have you been trading options before? Just a detailed questionnaire. That is also part of that ebook that people can just steal because I just finally put one together because everybody was asking for one. So that's that would be step number one. Send them a questionnaire, have that person fill out the questionnaire, then get on a phone call with them or a meeting, or it's harder now to have meetings, but a cup of coffee, a lunch meeting, or just on the phone or a Zoom call. Obviously, go through the questionnaire. But again, you're, the goal here is you're asking them questions about, hey, what's your level of sophistication? And you want to allow them to ask questions about you, about hey, what's your criteria? What are you doing with your investments? What do you really, you know, what is your you know, your philosophy and your, and your, and your, and your values when you're investing. Um, and then you want to encourage them to, you know, check out your website. You want to have some email interactions. I mean, again, kind of the big picture is just having those interactions. And then at some point, again, whether it's three days, three months, three years, 
you, it's a subjective decision. You make the decision like today is the day that I have a substantial relationship with Bryce. Today's the day. I've just gone through all my steps and, I, and, I've, and I've documented them, which is really important, right? Making sure you keep records of notes of those phone, if you're having phone calls, somehow document them, have you know a little outline or meeting minutes of the meeting, or if you've got emails, keep the emails. But you say today is the day. Well, now you can offer them future investments because you have to have a pre-existing substantive relationship, which means it has to pre-exist your offering, pre-existing your deal. So if you've already got a deal going, they're not going to be eligible for that because at the day that you've picked out, it's the, any future deals. Now you will have that pre-existing substantive relationship. So that's actually one of the few things that that um, that, that is a little, a little bit more clear for me. What you cannot do, which I see all the time, is just go to some event, you know, some seminar, some three-day or a, or a meetup or something, meet somebody for a few minutes, chit-chat, exchange business cards. You go home with a stack of business cards and you just start emailing them deals which happens to me all the time because I spent a lot of time at these conferences, at least pre-COVID. Um, and so I'm handing out my business card just like everybody else. And, and then I think people just either don't look or they have their assistant do it, but I inevitably start getting emails with offers, you know, weeks later. And I don't know this, I don't remember this person from it, you know, there's just a random email that I get that's offering me a 506B offering, which we don't have an existing relationship. And so- anyway, And it's, it's such an in inauthentic way to do business, but you know, still people are out there doing it. I. I highly doubt that they're very successful anyway, you know, because people would want to invest in a deal that where they know the operator. I mean, I wouldn't be giving my money away to somebody who's just like trying to do that. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. And that's actually one of the key things, right? I mean, one of the key things, I think, uh, if you're a passive investor is, is, is to know that operator and get to know, do your due diligence on that, on that team and that individual to see if they can, they can pull off what they're claiming they can pull off, right? Beautiful. And so you say you've got a questionnaire and you mentioned that that's in one of your eBooks and yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll include that in the show notes. So if you check it on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, check the show notes from Mauricio's eBook and you can check out the questionnaire there. Um, so still staying on the 506B, uh, is there any other downsides to the 506B or upsides that we haven't spoken about yet? Uh, we talked about the, some of the other upsides that also apply. So the, the whole preemption thing is a huge one. Again, I don't, we don't have to worry about the state. So that's a big one. It's a safe harbor. We talked about that at the beginning. Um, the other negative is there, there's a, not really a negative, but there's a bad actor provision in there. So if you, if you are sponsoring, if there, you know, sometimes you have multiple sponsors. It may, it may just be Bryce. By himself, or it might be Bryce and Mauricio get together and we do a, a syndication. But we want to make sure that neither one of us is what we call a bad actor. And, and essentially, bad actor is just making sure that you haven't been sanctioned or especially convicted of any anything related to securities violations in the past. Because if that's happened, then you're either going to be barred from raising capital, uh, or if it's happened long in, before 2013, and you at least have to disclose that. But um, but other than that, those I think are, those are the kind of the highlights. Uh, actually, it's not the highlights. All of the all of the uh, the boxes that we have to check on a 506b yeah that's great thanks for sharing that was yeah. that was awesome and then now let's move on to the 506c which i like uh you and i did one of these recently yeah. i really yeah. like it um there's definitely a lot of pros to it there's a few cons to it so let's talk about those i love it i love 506c's in, in fact i remember you know again i've been doing this for a long time and so i remember doing seminars uh, you know, prior to this rule passing, and and, and it was just basically you, we only had 506B, so you were not allowed to advertise, you were not allowed to be doing anything. And then the Great Recession happened in 2008, right? And that that prompted uh, the, 
don't know if you remember it, but it's called the Jobs Act that passed in mm -hmm. 2012. And we had such a huge recession that people were having a hard time raising money. And so they, the idea was let's pass this law to kind of loosen up some of these rules so that it kind of helps people to put these deals together because we need it for the economy. Our economy has been hit pretty hard. And so they came out with this new rule, which they now call 506C, which essentially, really, there's only a couple of differences. It allowed you to finally advertise because the big limitation of 506B is you cannot advertise. I can't go on a podcast and talk about my deal. I can't go on social media, although back then social media wasn't, but you can't go on social media. You can't take an ad out in the newspaper or whatever marketing strategy. You can't advertise a webinar that you then pitch a deal. That's all advertising, right? And so with 506C, that's something that's allowed. So everything else is about the same. You can still raise an unlimited amount of money. Uh, but instead of being prohibited and having to have this pre-existing relationship that we just talked about, you don't have to have a pre-existing relationship with anyone. You can literally meet somebody off the internet, uh, do a Facebook marketing campaign, or just get some, somebody random from Facebook, for example, or Twitter, or whatever, get that person's information, and then email them a deal. Or maybe you, you meet somebody at a seminar like we talked about before, and you exchange business cards, and like, great, I, I, can, I can then email them. So... The advertising piece I thought was going to be a huge, I mean, now you're, the world is your oyster. I mean, you can literally have unlimited, you have access to sort of not an unlimited amount of, of investors, but certainly your pool of investors has suddenly grown. Now, to your point, just because you know somebody, they're not going to, just because somebody came into your world, they're not going to invest. I mean, typically people still want to invest with people they know, like, and trust. And so having that, establishing that, that rapport with someone is important. But I still think it's a great way at a very minimum. And by the way, I'll tell you a, a, a quick story in a second, but it's just a great way to get new people onto your world, into your email database, into your thing, and then establish that rapport with them through value add and phone calls and meetings, or maybe you get to see them you know, at conferences or something, but it's a great way to bring people in, in your world. But I will tell you, I was uh, we were talking offline before we came on that I, I used to work at a private equity group, uh, a mobile home park private equity group. And one of the marketing uh, consultants that we had said, hey, let's run some Google AdWords uh, on mobile home parks, you know, because we, we had a mobile home park fund and we were looking for investors and like, let's run the Google. And I'm like, there's no way anybody's just going to Google mobile home park investing or whatever the keywords were, uh, us pop up and then going to write us a $100,000 check or a $200,000 check. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> so it can be done. Uh, you can definitely do your AdWords or Facebook and, and then, you know, that leads to a phone call and they, you have such a great rapport with them that they end up writing a big check. But, uh, but that's one of the, that's, that's really the game changer for us. And the reason you like it so much is that you're not limited to people in your world. It's not really a, it's almost like a public offering without really being a public offering. It's still technically a private offering, but it allows you to advertise. It allows you to lose, use all these platforms that we have available to us, podcasts, social media, you know, even traditional stuff or, or meetups and, and seminars to, to, to meet people and, and offer them. So that's, that's the good news. The bad news in quotation mark is that you are going to be limited to accredited investors only. And so that's probably the, one of the main reasons people shy away from it is that especially if they're starting out and they want to bring in uncle Bob, who's not accredited, well, that they would not be eligible for this particular investment under a 506 C because they have to be accredited investors only and you have to take what's called reasonable steps to verify that they are accredited. We can't just take their word from it. We should have mentioned it under a 506B, we just give them a questionnaire, they check the box, they tell us if we're accredited or not, and we can rely on that. We don't have to do any further due diligence. When you're doing a 506C, you have to verify. Now, in my mind, 
that's not the end of the world. Um, I always recommend clients to use what we call third-party verification companies. There are actually companies out there that will do this compliance work for you. They will, they will go through the process of verifying them and then just giving you a letter saying, hey, Bryce, I, I did the research on this person. This person's accredited, and then you can rely on that. It's as easy as online stuff too, you it's know, like ver verify investors, one of them. It's like yeah. $70 an investor. It's really not a big deal. And in fact, one of the easiest ways, although we are getting some pushback lately, but the easiest way to verify someone is actually through a, a CPA verification letter. So you, the investor can go to their CPA, have them do this letter, because obviously the CPA does their taxes and they know their income levels and they know their potential, their net worth. And so a representation from the CPA would count. So I don't think it's a, I, I would definitely unload that verification to a third party because you don't, you know, you don't, especially if you don't know them well, you know, you don't want to be going through their financials because basically if you're relying on income, for example, you're going to look at tax returns, you're going to look at W-2s, you're going to look at 1099s. I mean, that's kind of how you verify that somebody made $200,000. And if they're relying on net worth, well, are you going to look at brokerage accounts, bank statements, you know, property valuations, you know, whatever asset they have, some sort of documentation. Uh, you probably need to pull a credit report just to make sure that you can see all the liabilities too, because it's net worth, not just assets. So a lot of people say, Hey, look, this guy's got $2 million. You know, he's gotta be accredited. I'm like, no, he could have 5 million in liabilities. He's got negative mm -hmm. net worth. You know, everybody yeah. remembers, everybody remembers good old Donald Trump back in the eighties. Right. I mean, he was living a large life, but I think he was like negative $800 million in the hole at some point. Yeah. So he technically under that standard, under the net worth standard was not, not an accredited, but obviously, you know, living a good, good life. So just because they have a lot of money doesn't mean that they actually have the net worth because of the liability. So anyway, there's all that financial stuff. So just off offload that to a third party, pay them $75, $70, whatever the number is per investor, and they'll, they'll handle that stuff. But that's really the only difference. So let's go back to the comparison. If I had a chart in front of us, 506B and 506C that have the exact same boxes to check except for in a 506C, you can advertise. In a 506B, you cannot. And then in a 506C, you have to take accredited only and verify them. And in a 506B, you cannot. You can take a limited number of non-accredited. That's really the only two differences. Everything else is the same. You have the safe harbor, you have the preemption, so you don't have to worry about the state. You have the unlimited amount of money. You have the bad actor issues. Um, everything else is the same. It's just that little two pivot points of accredited versus non-accredited and advertising versus non-advertising. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for the clarification there. And I want to just resonate on one of those points a little bit. And that's uh, 506B. I really want to drive this one home. You can't talk about your deal while you're in the process of building a relationship with somebody until you've, you feel like you've established a relationship and you're ready to talk the deal. Um, and that's something that a lot of investors can skip over. That means you literally can't mention your live deal at all so when you're when you're in the process of meeting them you can't like mention oh i've got this deal coming on it's 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 live right now and blah, blah. You, you just can't even mention it um you can you you can't uh, let me make a, a slight distinction here you can't offer it to them mm -hmm. uh but in in the conversation you're having on the phone when you're trying to get to know someone you actually can show them the current you can you've got to be very clear look you're not eligible for this deal you cannot invest in this deal, but as an example of the types of deals that you do when you're trying to explain to them, you know, what's your investment philosophy, you know, what, what's your criteria, what are your values, you can show them past deals and, and, and a current deal even saying, oh, look, this is the kind of deals that we look at. Uh, again, very clearly, you're not eligible for this one, so you're going to have to wait till you know, after we create that substantive relationship. But a lot of people skip the step, like you mentioned, where they they meet them and before they establish the substantive relationship, they, 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 they offer them a deal or, or most, most likely what happens is they say, today is the day I got to know Bryce. 
And then they say, hey, I've got a deal in the works. You know, do you want to invest? And that's where the, I think that's where the, the big issue becomes because you cannot offer, the, offer them a current deal. You have to wait till the next deal once you establish that relationship. So I'm curious of what your opinion is on this because it's a little bit of a deeper dive on that topic. Let's talk about a scenario where an operator has a 506B offering, they have a live deal and they think, all right, we're gonna host an event. Uh, we're gonna have an educational event. We're gonna teach them about you know, mobile home park investing or apartments or something like that. And then at the end of the event, it's a paid event, people come and pay for the event. The end of the event, we're gonna pitch our deal. Um, is that acceptable in that kind of scenario? No, I wouldn't um, go there. What's your you know, viewpoint? If you're pitching the deal at the event, um, advertising your deal is the same as, and this is very clear from the SEC, if you advertise for a deal, you've obviously advertised. And if you advertise for a seminar or advertise for a webinar that then pitches a deal, it's the same, it's the same thing. There's no difference from the SEC's life. So that's kind of a, I would not do that. What you could do which is what I encourage people to do actually, especially when they don't have an active deal. Uh, and this goes into sort of the marketing, which, which I'm happy to get into. The best way to get new people into your world is through value add, right? So just add value to them and, and give them information or tidbits that are extremely valuable to them to the extent that they would be willing to give them your you know, email or some personal information so they have a contact info. So there's nothing wrong with putting together an educational, so same thing you mentioned, an educational webinar but then I would not pitch something. And you can talk about your, your company. Hey, look, well, I, I'm, you know, we have this company, we're a real estate investment firm and we invest in mobile home parks. So this is our strategy, but you would not be able to do a specific deal. And then that actually gets them into your world, right? That webinar or that seminar legally got them into your, into your sphere via the value add. And then you've got to go through those steps, right? You've got to take those, 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 those reasonable steps or those steps to, to establish that, that substantive relationship and then offer them a future deal. That's how you would get somebody in if we're doing a 506B. If you're doing a 506C, you can do that no problem, right? You, you can advertise whatever you want and then you can, do, you can pitch your deal on the webinar on a 506C. But on a B, pitching a deal in a webinar that you've, that, again, presumably that you've advertised for that webinar, it's going to be the same as advertising your deal. And you could advertise verbally, you could advertise uh, by oh, yeah. email, you could advertise yeah. like yeah. any knowledge of any of it, right? Okay, great. Yeah, so uh, let me just make a quick point of that because that's another interesting point. Anything that comes out of your mouth is part of your disclosure information, right? And so when, when and, and where you want to be careful is, especially these days, is on the webinar. So when you do a webinar, even when you're presenting, even if you're actually pitching your deal now, if, if it's people you already have a pre-existing relationship with, or maybe it's a 506 C and whatever, but you're making a presentation or a pitch on your deal. The way I like to explain it is it's just think of that webinar being transcribed and you end up with a 50 page document of like, you know, the, the actual transcription of the webinar and that you're going to attach that to your disclosure documents. I mean, it's part of your disclosures, even though they're coming out of your mouth. Um, if somebody ends up recording it, and one, or somebody transcribes it, that's gonna be part of your information, part of that information you're giving. So now we've gotta make sure that all that information, we're not omitting anything. It's really, that's where the biggest issues most syndicators have is leaving information out that they should have put in. And the more stuff that comes out of your mouth, the more stuff we've gotta put in to, to counter whatever you said. We wanna make sure that that's a, an accurate and complete statement that you made. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. That's a great point. So let's say I'm a passive investor and I'm, I've, someone presented me with a deal. Uh, we have a pre-existing relationship. That's all great. Um, and I'm looking at the deal. The deal seems like it makes sense. Um, but how do I know I'm getting involved with a good 
operator from a legal standpoint? What as a, as a passive investor, what do I need to look out for? Great question. Um, and I know I put together, we talked about offline at some point I put together sort of these, this little checklist of things that passive investors should, should look into when, when, you know, investing. Uh, and this is definitely one of them, one of the big ones, it's probably two big ones, but one of them that comes up a lot is, well, the first one I just about, the first thing you want to do is obviously do the due diligence on the, on, that's number one, right? And we'll talk about that in a second, but due diligence on the operator is by far the number one thing you've got to worry about. I mean, the deal, like you said, could be fantastic, be a great market, great asset class. But if you have a sponsorship team that's inexperienced, that's never done it before, um, you know, can they execute the plan? It's very easy to put a nice little glossy brochure and, and pretty projections and all that great stuff. But can the team, does it have experience or someone on the team experienced enough to actually execute on that thing? That's a huge thing. Um, and uh, so you want to ask about that. But the other thing that pops up a lot is if they if they fail to provide you with all the disclosure documents so for example if you're a non-accredited investor and you don't see a ppm a private place memorandum that's a red flag um because if you're a non-accredited or, or anybody in the deal is non-accredited there should be a private place memorandum okay and so if there's no ppm there's a good chance they're not working with an attorney they're probably cutting corners they're trying to save a few bucks by not having to pay a lawyer and so the question becomes, well, if they're cutting corners here, where else are they cutting corners in the deal, right? To save a few bucks. And I've, I've had that experience before where, and I don't do this anymore, but I used to, in the earlier days, I would have clients who wanted to invest and they would send me over other people's PPMs and I would review them. And this has come up a couple of times that there's been no PPM. And I said, where's the PPM? I was like, well, they, they said they didn't need one. And they come up with some, some reason that makes no sense, but they, they don't need a PPM. And I tell them, look, they, one is required. This is actually an illegal offering. So I guess the good news is if it goes south, they're going to have to pay you back the money. The bad news is they're probably not going to have it. But lo and behold, in both those instances, fast forward to two years and there was issues with the property. One was actually a fraudulent issue. And then the other issue was just the, just the deal had gone south. Um, so that's a big red flag. Uh, you should expect as a past investor, a detailed package. If they just send you a two page little thing and they're like, oh, here's the deal, you know, invest 50 grand. You, you should be expecting, a, you know, Bryce, what is it, 100 to 120 page package, which mm -hmm. would include the private place memorandum, which is what we've discussed, all the, all the disclosures, all the risks, everything, all the ways your deal can go south. You would expect to see an operating agreement that outlines sort of the, you're going to be investing into an LLC. LLC is the most common vehicle that we use to acquire real estate and, and even other businesses. So you're going to be a part owner as a passive investor. You're going to actually be buying small percentage of the, of the business. You're going to own 1%, 2%, 5% of this LLC. And so you would expect to see an operating agreement that outlines all the rights that you have, how distributions are going to be made. Uh, you know, do you have voting? Probably not too many, but what instances do you have voting? You know, what does it take to remove the manager? All those things are going to be in an operating agreement that you want to make sure you see. And you want to make sure that operating agreement matches what's in the PPM, because they may tell you something in the private placement memorandum, for example, Hey, I'm going to give you a preferred return, mm -hmm. but if it's not on the operating agreement, the operating agreement is what, what controls. So you want to make sure the operating agreement matches the PPM. And then you should see something like a, usually an investor questionnaire, which is asking you, you know, whether you're accredited or not, and you should see a subscription agreement. Those are you. And then the business plan. So that's kind of a package. That's what we call the disclosure documents or the offering documents. And if you don't see that, if you just get a flimsy, you know, glossy two-page thing and they want you to invest money that's a red flag and you, and you want to make sure you should be asking well where's the ppm or can i talk to your attorney or something like that because if they don't have a securities lawyer 
that's going to be a big red flag. And you mentioned, you mentioned the offering memorandum and you mentioned that last. Uh, and interestingly, that's the first thing that most people see. Yes. Um, but you need to make sure that all the other stuff's going to be behind that as well, following yeah. that. Yeah, the way I, you know, and, and people have different practices. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable enough where the, you're right. The, the, the offering memorandum, and people call it offer memorandum, pitch deck, uh, executive summary, business plan. I mean, all, all these different names. But essentially, it's the... It's, it's all the good news, really. It's like why, why you should invest in my deal, essentially. And, and that's mm -hmm. a really important document. And that's usually your marketing material. That's what you're going to show your prospective investors. That's what the prospective investors are going to first receive and review and make a determination whether this is something they're interested in and want to have a conversation with you. So that's the first thing that they see. Uh, and typically, you're showing that document to them while the attorney is drafting the, the, the other 120 page of, of, of legal disclosures. You're, mm -hmm. you're having those conversations with the business plan. Maybe you're even doing a webinar while the legal docs get finalized because they do take, you know, they do take time to put together, you know, 150 pages of disclosures. Um, but yes, you're right. That, that's the first document they see. Some people even do a pre-document. They do sort of a one, one sheet, right? Like mm -hmm. a really high level overview. Because look, if you're going to email a bunch of people, some people may not have the money. Some people may not be interested in the particular asset class. So you don't want to be sending them a 200 page document. You want to send them a one page so they can raise their hand and then you can send them the business plan. So, but that's the first thing they're going to see. And then the legal docs typically are, are sort of, you know, hopefully by then they're, they're convinced that this is a good deal from what they've seen so far. They just want to make sure they understand all the risks involved and then they're, they should be ready to, to sign off on those documents. And only when they sign off on all those documents, should you be sending money to wherever you're supposed to send money to so making sure you're, you've reviewed and signed those documents is kind of a prerequisite absolutely and if you don't um you need to go back to the drawing board and look for another operator so uh let's flip the coin and let's look at it from an operator's perspective um if i came to you and i said hey Mauricio, got another deal. We're going to put this one um, in the process. What would what would that look like? What what would what would you need from me? What would that process look like, and what would the timelines be? Yeah, so so great question. So they typically first first process they they had an email from from you, and you would say, "Hey, Mauricio, good news. I I got an LOI accepted in this property. You know, let's let's hop on a call." Um, the first thing I do is I send out my little questionnaire just to kind of get basic information about, you know, who the players are, what's the name of the entities, you know, what the distributions are, really high level stuff. And then I want to see your business plan or your, your OM, as you mentioned, so whatever you want to call it. But I want to see that business plan because we spend a lot of time underwriting that business plan. We spend, we go through that thing line by line and that'll generate a thousand questions, a thousand comments. And that's really what we're going to do in our first call. We're going to go through that business plan. We're going to go through the questionnaire. And that's where a good lawyer asks a lot of questions of you, because the key for us is we have this document called a PPM, but you can get a PPM off the internet, right? I mean, but it's worthless off the internet. What you're trying to do is making sure you're putting all the disclosures and risks of your particular unique deal into this document. And the only way I know how to do that is by reviewing the materials you provided me and then asking you all these questions. So I pull that information from you. You don't know what's relevant or not relevant, what you should disclose and what you shouldn't disclose. I know that, but I don't know what's in your head. So I've got to pull that information from your head based on the information you provided me and the questions I ask you so that I know what to put in the PPM. Um, and so that process could be, you know, if, if, if we've worked together for a while, that could be a quick process because we've done it before. The first one always takes longer, but once we get in a rhythm, that might be one or two rounds of drafts of the, of the OM before that's finalized. 
uh, and then we start creating the the entities right so we create the llc for the property we create sometimes the sponsors want to create their own llc so we'll create those we start that process so that we have a place to open a bank account and receive monies and then Can i just start- add something there i just want to add in something yeah. there you said that um you're gonna maybe go for a few rounds of uh yeah. drafts of Visions, the om yeah. until it's yeah. ready and yeah. for for um operators to know that you can't actually send out your offering memorandum until your attorney's blessed it yeah um sure. and unless you want to open yourself up to a whole bunch of liability well not only that i mean i just happened to me last week um <laughs> and sometimes i get calls later on in the process so um i actually had a had a client who did a web they called me on a friday and it was the same day they were doing a webinar that evening and i hadn't seen anything obviously and so not the great greatest way to do it i want to make sure that i'm reviewing everything uh, and you want to get the sign off from the attorney before you post it and the reason for it which is what happened here is you go to your investors you you give them uh here's the deal here's this here's that and all this stuff and then you show it to your attorney and your attorney says you can't do it that way you've got to do it this way or you or you, or you, you know you, you if we do it that way we're going to risk this whatever so the, the attorney a lot of times will change the structure of the deal now what now you've sent out this dog everybody's kind of excited about your deal and it turns out you know you know i can't do it that way like this particular one i think we had to create a separate entity uh where they had to first invest into this entity and then that had to be kind of a co-manager of the, i mean it was just kind of a mess and it created some issues where if we had done it on the front end and we would have been able to explain that a little bit better on the webinar, like here's the reason we're doing it this way. We have to be a co-manager with our separate entity and all that stuff. So it's really important not to send out uh, anything, especially if you're sending out numbers. I mean, there's one thing if you wanna send out high level, you know, hey, we, we, we're in contract for a building, we need to raise a million dollars and we're, we're gonna give you an 8% preferred and it'll be a 70-30 split, like that kind of stuff. Even that I can change. But if you're giving projections and performas and you know really the projections are what scares me uh, people like to put projections and oh you're going to make this much money we really want to make sure that the proper dis- even on the om that the proper disclaimers are on there you know hey this is these are projections these are you know these are based on a, a bazillion assumptions and all those assumptions are what's in the ppm so it's very important for you to review the ppm to understand how we arrive at these particular numbers yeah excellent Excellent. So um, we've gone through a few rounds, getting our offering memorandum. You've approved it. I've sent it out to my investors. What are we working on next? You're probably, hopefully by then you've also received, you know, the the LLC has been created. So you have the the tools. We've got an EIN. So you've got the tools available so you can go open a bank account. So that's going to be on you to go find, you know, get the bank accounts open. And then we draft documents pretty darn fast. Uh, one of the, there's really two things that, that I realized, uh, I've been doing this for a long time, but the pattern that I've seen is two big complaints when people come over from other firms to me is number one, turnaround speed. It mm-hmm. just takes forever to get these docs done. You've got investors, you, you sent out the OM, you've done a webinar, you're closing in three weeks, like you need to get the money in. The and, pressure's and on. More, the more time that goes by, then maybe there's something else that pops around. Like you want to get the money in. And sometimes it just takes two, three, four weeks, five weeks to get these docs done. And it's just, you know, people get frustrated. Um, and so we, I made a conscious decision that we were going to be like, if not the fastest, one of the fastest turnaround speeds. So we do it as fast as a week, most likely 10 days, but somewhere between seven to 10 days from the time we have that call where we do that deep dive the time you have draft documents let's call it a week i mean you can do it as fast as a week and i actually done it sooner for emergencies but let's take it a week 
Um, Which is look, music. Much- that's music to an operator's ears because right. that just like relieves a lot of pressure and stress because we're out there on a strict timeline with our right. contract needing to raise capital and close on the deal. Yeah. yeah. And then look, it's a bunch of legal docs at the end of the day. So I don't get that much pushback from, from clients. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it, it cures insomnia. It's 120 pages that the operator has to go through and just make sure, you know, it, it's right. And so usually after a day or two, that gets that gets put into final and, and then you're off to the races. Then you can actually send that out to your investors and actually start receiving the monies. So that's that's key. The other issue I come up with a lot, which is another reason I made this decision was just access to lawyers. Uh, you you and I, you know, we communicate, you know, where's you know, my text, you know, my phone over here and, and most of my clients will just text me or email me, but like waiting three or four days to get a hold of your securities lawyer, just that was a big frustration, especially on the not to knock rag on my older uh, colleagues, but especially with the older gentlemen, the, the, the folks who were in their 60s and 70s, like sort of senior partners, it would take them like days to get back to them. So um, access to attorneys is a big thing. So turnaround speed and access to attorneys for me is really important, one of our core principles. So people are texting me, emailing me, getting on phone calls, really accessible. Uh, and then once that PPM goes out, that whole package, and you start actually receiving monies, which is the, the, the good stuff, then what has to happen is within 15 days, actually one of the things I forgot to mention, sorry, now it's coming back to me on the 506B versus 506C, but within 15 days of the first sale that you make, and a sale, mm. you can argue what that makes, but whenever, just think of it, whenever the money comes into the bank, you know, let's, let's play it safe. The money, mm-hmm. within 15 days of money in your account, you have an obligation to file what's called a Form D because we're relying on an exemption under Regulation D, Reg D. So we have to file a Form D with the SEC within 15 days of that first sale. Um, it's just a notice filing, it's not a big deal. It just tells you, you know, who you are and how much you're raising and you know, what, what you're getting compensated. It's, you're not looking for approval, it's just letting the SEC know that you're out there. And they, use, they actually use that a lot for statistics and knowing how much people are raising and all that stuff. But that has to be done within 15 days. Not a huge deal. The big deal is within 15 days of each sale, first sale in each state, Right. So if you if you have an investor in North Carolina and that, and that person is your first your first uh, investor in North Carolina, you have to file a copy of that form D in the state of North Carolina, along with their filing fee. I call it the tax. But, you know, whether it's 100 bucks or 200 bucks or 500 bucks, I don't remember what North Carolina is, but it's probably 150 dollars or something within 15 days of that first sale. And then when you sell something in California, you've got to file in California a copy of the Form D within 15 days of that first sale in California. California's a little bit more expensive, it's $300. And then in Texas, which I think is $500, like it just every, so somebody has to keep track of all of that, which is something that we do as well. That's called our blue sky filings. So we keep track of that. And then what I like to do as well, because I've also based on my experience is once you're done with the raise, at that point you file all your state filings, you've raised all the money, you've closed on your deal uh, and you've raised all the money, which Let's talk, make sure I don't forget about that because that's a big deal too. Just because you've closed mm-hmm. on the property doesn't mean you've closed on the offering. Mm-hmm. But let's say you're completely done with everything and you pop the bottle of champagne and you're done drinking your champagne. Then what I like to do is I like to ask for the documents at that point, all the investor documents that have been signed. I want to take a look at them because I we perform an audit and we just want to make sure that all the T's are do- crossed and all the I's are dotted to make sure that all the signatures are there that the proper parties have signed, because if they haven't, it's not a big deal. If, if for example, a common one, somebody invests through a, their IRA or something, and they end up signing the document themselves when it really should be signed by the custodian of the IRA, not a big deal. Hey, John, you just notice that you didn't do this. Do you, mind, do you mind forwarding that? If you wait for three years from now when things aren't going well, potentially, 
and then you're trying to, oh crap, I'm missing a signature from one of the operating agreements or whatever. That's not the time for you to go fix that, you know, three years from now. Uh, you want to fix that right at the bat. So we do a little audit just to make sure everything's been signed properly. And then at that point, hopefully you're on to the next one. You're, you're digging and doing your due diligence for the next deal. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. You know, you, you started, I think you started going here. I'll see if this is where you were going. Yeah. Um, let's, let's run a scenario where I've come to you and uh, I'm like, all right, Maurice, here I've got this deal. It's a 350 space mobile home park. I'm going to need about one and a half million to close on the deal so that I have enough down payment for my loan. That's literally all I need to get the deal closed. I just need that and my closing costs. But in addition, I know that my business plan requires $2 million worth of capital expenditures. I'm going to bring in new and used homes. I'm going to fill lots. I'm going to repave some of the roads. Um, technically, I don't have to raise that $2 million to get the deal closed. So, and I've never had to be in a situation where I am like that. I always raise my capital up front for capital expenditures and down payment and closing costs. But what if something happened through the capital raise and all I could do is raise the one and a half million to get the deal closed and I still need to raise two more $2 million um, for all of my capital improvements so I can play out my business plan. How do we handle that kind of scenario? Yeah, so typically that's handled on the front end. So you're, you're letting the investors know whether is this an all or nothing deal? Do you have to raise all the money? Otherwise you're returning it all. Is it a contingent on a minimum amount that you're raising? Sometimes we have a contingent raise, which says, look, I got to raise a minimum of this. Let's say you're raising 2 million, but I need a minimum of 1.2. And if I don't get to 1.2, I'll return everybody's money. Uh, we typically do what we call a best efforts thing. So it's like, we're going to raise money and we're going to do our best efforts to raise it, but we're going to start operations basically as soon as I get the money. So it's not uncommon for people to close on the property and then continue to raise post-close. So as long as we've disclosed that, that's going to be fine. A lot of times it's just like, we're just short, maybe 50 grand or a hundred grand. And you're like, well, I'll forego my, my acquisition fee or something that, or, or, or maybe reserves. We can, we can, we can forego that for a couple more weeks while we get the, the last stragglers in into the deal. So that's not uncommon. Where I was going, and the reason I wanted to differentiate that is that even though that's perfectly fine, as long as we've disclosed that on the front end, it has to do with the advertising piece. And so what I see a lot is, again, if you're doing a 506B offering, you cannot post anything about your deal, obviously, uh, on social media, right? And what I typically see, which is kind of a gray area, so some people do it, some people don't, is like, you see the, the posts on Facebook, which is like, hey, we've, we've closed, congratulations, we just closed on our property, we're super proud, thanks to our investors and all this rah, 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 which is great. There's an argument to be made that if you've got a deal right around the corner, that could be viewed as sort of advertising, kind of conditioning the market for your next deal. So that's why I don't like, I don't love those. Uh, it's getting, there's actually some new rules that came out that, that, that soften that a little bit. But my concern is there's scenarios where people close on the property, they make that post, rah, rah, we close, congratulations, blah, blah. And they still continue to raise money after that because they've got to, they've got to finish the raise. Right. And so now that that post looks awfully like an advertising for your deal because you're still ra actively raising for that deal. And you've made a post on Facebook or Twitter or you mentioned it on your podcast or whatever it was and you haven't completed the raise. There's a good argument to be made that that that's, uh, the SEC would definitely make an argument that, that that's that's going to consider. Argument. So that's why I wanted to make that distinction between when you close on the property versus closing on the offering, which are you often still... the same date, which is closing date, but sometimes yeah. not. You still have to follow all those rules all the way until you've raised yeah. all of the capital and then you're done deal. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Great for bringing that up. So um, 
I mean, obviously there's a cost to this um, to get all of this legal documents and legal protection and everything like that. And you might even in your mind have sort of a line in the sand where you think uh, for someone beyond this line, it's worth doing a syndication. And on this side of the line, you're probably sure. not worth yeah. it. So what are the general costs involved and what, what is that line in the sand? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I would say just on a cost in general, not just the legal fees, but also, you know, your blue sky filing and everything. I mean, I think a, a general good uh, rule of thumb is, is in your underwriting to put a line item called legal and compliance. And I would put 15, one five. Mm -hmm. uh, the vast majority of that is obviously your legal fees. But then again, you do have these, you know, your, fi your state filing fees could be a couple grand. If mm -hmm. you've got something in New York, God forbid, uh, you know, they, they, I think, charge two grand just by themselves. So you may end up mm -hmm. spending five or six grand just in filing fees. Um, so I think that's a good uh, point. And so because of that, obviously, there's a compliance cost, right? I mean, that's the reality. And that's some, one of the things I bring up usually when I'm talking to new prospective clients is I bring that up pretty early in the process. If somebody says, hey, I'm, I'm looking to raise 150 grand, right? Well, 50, it's the same. It's flat. It's a flat fee. So whether you're raising 150 or 1.5 million, it's still 15 grand. So if you're only raising 150 grand, that's a 10% load, 15,000 into 150 grand. That's a lot of money. That, that's, that's probably mm. going to kill any numbers you have from, from yeah. that, that single family home or whatever you're buying. Uh, 1.5 million, that becomes 1%. That shouldn't be an issue at all. I mean, once you're over a million bucks, it shouldn't really matter. Where's that cutoff? I, I tend to think in general, once you, you've got to at least be raising six, I would say 600 grand, five, six, seven, that's kind of the, the range. And of course it depends on the deal. I mean, some deals have such a huge fat margin that you could in theory, I mean, I'm doing a deal now that we're raising uh, 450 mm -hmm. uh, and it makes sense. I mean, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a great value add. And, you know, once, once all the, all the, all the renovations have done, it's, it's just, it's a great opportunity and there's plenty of uh, meat on the bone. And so there's, that's fine. But, there's that much upside in the deal that the extra 15 grand just doesn't, doesn't change matter. the overall return. But if it's a tight margin and you're already having a hard time squeezing out a profit for your investors and you making the money, sometimes operators even lower there, you know, you know, instead of maybe doing it as an 80, 20, they do a 90, 10, just because they've got to squeeze in a little bit more yield for the investors. Well, then that a 10% load or a 5% load is going to, is going to kill your numbers. But the rule of thumb, I like to say is about 600 grand. If I see somebody below that, I'll bring that up right up front. So we don't waste anybody's time. Look, there's a compliance cost. This is what you're going to have to put in there and just reverse engineer it, put it in your spreadsheet and see what comes out. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. One of my dear friends, Russell Bray from the real estate guys loves to say, do the math and the math will tell you what to do. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Mate, you've been a wealth of knowledge. I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. Yeah. Talk, talk a bit about freedom. Yeah. So uh, Big topic these days, right? It is. It is. You know, and the interesting thing is I actually started out Freedom Hack Radio with the intention to teach people about financial freedom, time freedom and location freedom, which here at Freedom Hack Radio, we call the Freedom Trinity. And, uh, you know, interestingly, there's just been a lot of uh, really awesome people, a lot of guests that want to come on the show that in addition to talking about these topics that we talk about, they really want to talk about freedom. So that's that's something that I didn't actually think that was going to happen from creating this uh, podcast, but it's happening and I love it and I'm going with it. So, um, yeah, talking about freedom in your eyes, in your mind, what's the ultimate freedom lifestyle to you? Well, I think, I mean, it's probably going to be cliche. I mean, do, do, what is it? Doing what I want, when I want it, with whomever I want. I mean, having that's the ultimate freedom in my mind. Uh, you know, fortunately for me, you know, I, I decided 15 years ago that I was going to start, you know, have my own firm, my own business. I've been working out of my house 
for the last 15 years. Um, and we've had, we have a remote virtual team uh, mm -hmm. around the country and just that flexibility of, I mean, Wednesday, I'm actually taking off for trips, give you a quick story. I'm taking off for trips. So we're doing, we're going to do Valentine's day on Wednesday in the middle of the day. You know, yeah, I, cool. I wouldn't be able to do that if I worked at a law firm, I had to go nine to five and, you know, kind of that thing. And so beautiful thing about syndication is that it allows you to get to that point where you can set your own hours. You can, do, you know, do as many deals as you want to do, or as little deals as you want to do and have that time freedom, which I think is probably of all of those is probably the most important one. I mean, time might, you know, my, my mentor, Jim Rohn, I don't know if you remember or, or, or follow Jim Rohn, yeah. but Jim Rohn had a great saying, he said, time is more valuable than money. You can always get more money, but you can never get more time. Uh, and that's especially as you get older and older, you know, as you can see my gray hairs, I'm, I don't know, I think we're about this. Well, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but you know, mm -hmm. once you start hitting 50, you start really appreciating time. And so having that freedom to do what you want to do uh, when you want to do it has been, I can't imagine having sort of that, that typical nine to five, you know, uh, grinding or, or, or having other people tell me what to do. So that's why I love syndication. And a lot of my clients make that start off doing it as a second sort of a second job, they have their full-time job and they do this on the weekends or in evenings. And at some point they make the jump and they go full-time and that, that freedom is, is they're so excited when that happens. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I spoke to a few people recently uh, who mentioned their biggest fears in life and it was things like, you know, becoming uh, a, a paraplegic or something like this, you know, some kind of like physical disabilities and then having that limitation, going blind or something like that. Right, right. I, I actually think that living a mediocre life and doing the nine to five grind is such a pound on us emotionally and spiritually that I think that's one of the worst things that can happen to us. And, and I know I'm speaking from experience, syndications literally changed my life. And um, there's no way that I would be sitting here in the position I am without using the power of syndication. So I really love it. It's, it's translated to a lot of freedom for me, which is why I'm so excited to share it with everybody. And, um, you know, you and I work together. I'm not having you on this podcast so I can just promote you and throw you out there to the public. We work together. I love what we do. I want to share this with our freedom hackers. So that's why we're, we're having this discussion today. So, you know, we are in interesting times right now. I am curious what's got you most uh, scared or fearful or concerned or worried about the next 12 months or maybe even two, three years. I mean, it's, it's honestly, you know, and I'm sure this will resonate with you. It, it's just, you know, not to get really, it's not really a political thing, but just, I just, I hate being told what to do. Right. And so mm. whenever I have, uh, you know, I, I live in here in California. Right. So you can just imagine the, the, the amount of uh, things that the, our government tells what to do. So from a freedom perspective, I'm really just I'd, I'd love for them to stay out of my business. Um, you know, I want everybody to have that freedom, but they're not. And that's my biggest fear is that they just continually kind of um, stepping on my toes and they're, you know, not, not just on the economic side of raising taxes, but just on the regulation side and, 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 and making it harder for me to do what I want to do, which is to grow my business and, and spend more time with my family. Um, they're just starting to force us to do things that we don't want to do, whether it's getting, you know, vaccine passports or, you know, forcing me to go do this or force me to go do that. Uh, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned about to see where it goes. I mean, we may have to end up leaving the state if it gets a little bit worse. And again, for us, I think California is a little bit more on the extreme side than most of the rest of the country. But uh, so I, maybe I'm at the forefront of that. But that's actually my biggest fear is just sort of that overcrowding uh, that, that we're starting to feel from, from our local governments. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, mate. Totally with you on that one. And then flipping that coin, what's got you most excited about the next 12 months, next few years? 
you know, again, I brought it up a little bit. I'm a little bit sort of embarrassed, but, you know, just from the business side, our business has really been exploding here in the last uh, six to 12 months. And just uh, we've been hiring a bunch of people. We're looking for new hires. So just just from a business perspective, just building that company uh, and serving as many as many syndicators as we can, because that's really what we're here to do is to add as much value as we can to our syndication community. So and I'm actually looking at doing a little bit what you're doing is sort of expanding instead of just focusing. I mean, I'm, I'm known as the legal guy. Right. Mm -hmm. But but I'd like to kind of expand that a little bit and sort of let every, you know, teach people. I mean, I've got so many great relationships with great marketers, you know, how to actually raise the capital. I mean, all these little phases, the, the, I like to call it a puzzle, right? You're putting as a syndicator, you're putting a puzzle together. I'm a piece of that puzzle, which is the legal side, but there's a bunch of other pieces of the puzzle, which I'd like to start talking a little bit more about in the coming months. And what would you call, if we were to look at the, the whole puzzle piece together, what would you call that? I call it the, the syndication puzzle is really in the, on that on that piece. Obviously, it's part of the life puzzle, but, but okay. the syndication puzzle, I've got the legal piece to the syndication puzzle, which is then a, a subsection of the life puzzle. Or yeah. at that point, I like to call it the, the, the life wheel. <laughs> yeah, the, that's, uh, the, there's so many analogies you can do, but obviously it's a subset of um, I mean, hopefully all of us are doing this you know, for, to, to, to sort of have a, a great lifestyle, right? And uh, it's not, uh, you know, you don't want to spend, unless you actually love it, which, which, which I actually enjoy what I do, but if I didn't have to, I surely would not be drafting PPMs all my life. Sure, <laughs> but it's sure, part of the sure. bigger, it's part of the bigger thing, right? So you do this so that you can then spend more time, in my case, spend my time with my family uh, and spend my time with my friends doing what I want to do, uh, as opposed to having other people tell me what to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a mobile home park owner operator. I don't own mobile home parks for the enjoyment of owning mobile right. home parks. You know, we have to deal with a bit of stuff, but the freedom right. lifestyle it gives me is absolutely amazing. So what you're talking about with the puzzle is joining some of the dots for people like, you know, how to market, um, how to raise capital properly, you know, and, and the, tax and the benefit, whole piece. How to maximize your tax piece. I mean, there's all these little pieces. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, looking forward to hearing more about that. So for all that, all of our freedom hackers out there, how would they find out more about that or how would they keep in contact with you and keep the conversation going? If you want to, if I know you're putting the link to the ebook, that'll, that'll get you on my, on my list. And I, I put out a lot of great content, I think uh, for the list, or if you just go to the website, which is premierlawgroup.net, you can contact me there and the YouTube channel. I'm really trying to blow up this YouTube channel in, in 2021. So would love for you to go check it out. I put a lot of videos up there that hopefully will add value to, to you as a syndicator. Um, so it's just under Mauricio Raul on the YouTube channel and I'd love for you guys to check that out. Beautiful. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for all of your vulnerability and for sharing what is otherwise a complex topic. And, you know, to be honest with you, most of the conversations I have with syndication people, they really lack in the ability to, to explain it in layman terms. And so thank you very much for being able to share that with us today. Um, I really appreciate working with you. Looking forward to many more deals this year. And uh, for all of our freedom hackers, I hope you've got something out of learning about syndication. If it's something that you want to explore further as a passive investor, um, then this can serve as your base foundation of, of some, what to look into and, and where to go from here. And if you're an operator like myself and you're looking for someone to help you put together your syndications, then I highly recommend reaching out to Mauricio. Um, Premier Law Group does an exceptional job. They've got a quick turnaround, great guys to work with, super knowledgeable. And I know that you, you were in a private equity firm yourself, so you really understand the other side of things as well. You understand the operation 
operational side, which most syndication attorneys just really don't, or SEC attorneys, sorry. Um, and then for any of you that are interested in any kind of passive investments or exploring more possibilities like that, uh, like I mentioned, I am a mobile home park owner operator. We put together investments. So if you want to find out anything about that, just email me and we'll start the conversation. You can reach me at Bryce at freedomhackradio.com and that's B-R-Y-C-E at freedomhackradio.com. So once again, Mauricio, thank you very much. Uh, can't thank you enough for coming on today. Looking forward to all the exciting things that we're going to be working on this year. Um, until next week, this is Freedom Hack Radio. I'm your host, Bryce Robertson. Live large, live free. G'day, this is Bryce Robertson. I'm your host here at Freedom Hack Radio, and I truly, truly hope that you got a ton of value out of the episode that we just shared with you. And if you did, make sure to subscribe on your YouTube channel. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite podcasting platform. Hit the notification button so you can find out about the next episodes as they come out. Because if you haven't achieved financial time and location freedom, you really need to be dialed in here. So make sure to subscribe and follow us along as you grow on your path to financial time and location freedom here at Freedom Hack Radio.